and for a moment there were no applause. The audience had been so stunned by the emotional immediacy and power of the performance. And he said that the people, the audience was weeping. And sometimes we see performances where people cry, it happens all the time, or at least, I don't know if it happens all the time, but it, it happens periodically. And he said, but this was not a few people, this was the audience and mass, you know, like a critical mass of the people in the audience were in tears and they were literally stunned and emotionally undone because she had just sort of opened this portal. And that's what we're going for. That's what we're trying to do. But we can't do it by deciding in advance, oh, this is going to be really cool or this is going to be a cool sequence of steps or this is virtuosic or this is what's going to make it. Today on Creativity in Mind, professor of dance at Whitman College and my current professor for a class on somatics, Peter DeGrasse. Peter has performed and presented choreographic work at various festivals and events in Europe, Asia, and North America. He has studied forms like ballet, popping, waving, and other street styles, and is a veteran in the world of creativity. This is a big episode. It runs around an hour 45, and we cover a lot of ground. Peter really thoughtfully explores how what we think of differs from what occurs to us, the critical role of practice in creative pursuits, uh, collaboration and chemistry between people, and he shares lots of stories and anecdotes along the way. Our conversation starts out with me asking a question that's too big to answer, <laughs> and then uh, we get into things. So it's a great episode and conversation that I'm sure I'll be revisiting for a while. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. So, Peter, how's it going? It's going pretty well. It's a beautiful, sunny day here in Walla Walla. Nice. And I'm in the dance studio, and the sunshine is just streaming in through the windows. Sweet. So, uh, I'm glad we finally found some time to chat. Uh, I'm excited to have you on the podcast today because I think you have a particularly interesting way of thinking about creativity and maybe experience with the creative process, um, especially with regards to the human nervous system and body. Um, and maybe, you know, a good place for us to start might be, you know, in your experience, either through the artistic process of dance or, you know, something through the somatic process, like what role do you think the peripheral nervous system or body uh, have in cognition and mind? I'm pausing because that's both a hard question and a question I feel like I could answer a thousand ways. Mm -hmm. But one way to think about creativity is perhaps if we want to be in a creative state, we are setting conditions such that the moment of discovery is more likely. So how do I do that? And maybe one way I do that is by not trying to think up something, 
So perhaps there's a difference between thinking and having thoughts. Sometimes I talk to students about that when I teach meditation. And having the thought is often where creativity comes in because the thing that you couldn't have planned or didn't think of or didn't come up with through some active mentational process just occurs to you. It's like a lightning strike. And then an image or a movement or some theoretical possibility is just there in your head. Hmm. And you can run with it or capitalize on it or connect with it or however you want to think about it. And you can't make it do it. It happens to you. Um, and I think it, it, it happens to you when you're relaxed. It happens to hmm. you when you're calm. It happens to you when you're not thinking about it. And this is pure conjecture on my part, but I would venture that if we think about that in physiological terms, maybe that has something to do with a kind of balance or rhythm of sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And, you know, if I'm in a good rhythm or a good balance, then that thing, that lightning strike, that pow in my imagination is maybe more likely to occur. I had a friend way back who said, Whenever I'm trying to solve a problem, the solution always comes to me when I'm in the bathroom. <laughs> I would guess that that's because that's not what he was thinking about when he was in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. So in your uh, creative process with dance or in choreography, is that often your experience too, that some of um, your best ideas come when you're most relaxed? Yeah, or... To build on it or maybe take it a step further it's not coming from me at all it's coming from another person hmm. and then it's being able to receive it or or not go by the prior plan so for example vicky lloyd taught dance at whitman college she was one of my immediate predecessors here and several years ago we were working on a piece together we decided to collaborate and we didn't really know what we wanted to do. We just knew that we wanted to make something together. And so we were in the studio and we'd sort of set these conditions that were fairly quotidian. We divided the space into two rectangles. She would move inside of her rectangle. I would move inside of mine. We would take turns. It was a, a pretty dry setup. And we were generating some interesting movement content, but we didn't really know where we were going. Um, we had no prior design. And then one day Vicky came into the studio with a tutu <laughs> and she said, Peter, I think you should wear this. <laughs> we were, and I didn't know what we were doing. And, and I, I put it on and then within a few weeks I was wearing these crazy shiny lacquer black seven inch stripper shoes <laughs> and we ended up creating what was the seed for a dance theater piece in which I became this weird six foot eight cannibalistic drag queen. And there was a live jazz ensemble on stage with us. And it was just this bizarre thing. 
but we never, we never, we didn't go into the studio setting out to make a gothic dance theater piece. Right. We were just sketching material. And then Vicky with her kind of sense of humor and me with no plan in mind, we, we ran with this moment where we capitalized on this moment. Hmm. So I think there's something about not being too worried about the prior design or maybe not even having a prior design. Or an end goal, sort of. That's too highly specific, maybe. Hmm. Or being able to, or having an end goal, perhaps, but being able to discard that. Huh. Are there moments in your creative process where, I mean, maybe this is too strict of a qualification, but if you had to sort of put a percentage to like deliberate, conscious thinking and planning versus sort of the more spontaneous, active, imaginative, uh, rule-less sort of creativity. Do you think you could parse that out in your choreography experience or your uh, creative process with dance? I could, but I don't think, well, I would fail to put a number on it, but I would say, I would say it falls perhaps into two areas. So I'm a, a believer in the concrete and the automatic. So I could, metaphorically speaking, create a blueprint. And then I could, again, metaphorically speaking, build the house from the blueprint. Hmm. And that is a way of making art. But another way would be to see what are the materials we have. Uh-huh. So now I'm going to depart from the metaphor and go to the actual. So I collaborated with some Whitman students some months ago, or maybe it was more than that, on a piece we ended up calling Flower Bomb. And we didn't have, we didn't start with a design, but we had Micah Ascension who could play the piano. And so in the dance studio, there was this upright piano and he was playing it during rehearsal. And then we decided that the piano should be a part of the mise-en-scene, that that object should be on stage. And so that's what I'm talking about when I say the concrete and the automatic. So we don't rule anything out. We don't leave anything out. We include everything. So what are all the physical objects? What are all the talents, faculties, abilities, and ideas, of everyone mm. who's collaborating, and we are including everything. We're leaving nothing out. So we have someone in the room who can play the piano. We have a piano in the room. Well, let's get that going. We didn't plan to make a piece around that, but it's a power and a physical object and an ability that we have. So yes, it's in here, which is a kind of kitchen sink approach. So we put everything, we include everything. Now, I don't know is that actively thinking or is that totally spontaneous? I don't know. Maybe it's some kind of principle. Mm-hmm. What it looked like in practice was, Micah, do you have something that you're working on right now? Well, of course he did because he's he was practicing and taking lessons and 
he's had some experience in training with piano. And so he just played that, and then that became part of what we were doing. And that conversation may have been kind of spontaneous, and the particular selection may have been spontaneous. So he was probably working on several things at that moment, and we chose one. And that choice wasn't based on any analytical process. It was just, oh, well, that's cool. Let's work with that. But what's behind that is something that is much more deliberate and ordinary, which is the daily practice of piano on his part, which was something that was completely outside of a rehearsal process. Hmm. So that means that there's a practice. So for me, for example, popping is my, my form. I have background and training and professional experience in all of these European forms, ballet and contemporary dance. But what I'm doing in the studio every day is I'm doing, I'm doing popping and animation drills. And I'm doing that all the time. And I'm devoting a lot of time to that. When I decide to make work, the, the making of that work, probably it's more a conversation with a collaborator and some things that occur spontaneously in the studio. And that collaboration if it's a theatrical performance or if it's a live performance, it may or may not include the popping drills or that material. But if that door opens, then that content is just ready to pour in. It's like a flood because I've been practicing every day for years huh. and it can just pour in. And that practice is something I'm doing every day. It's very deliberate. There's an order of things that many of the exercises are set. And if I look at that in terms of percentages, maybe 90% of that is practice in the form of rope drills. And mm -hmm. those will have subtle variations and alterations on a weekly or monthly basis. And then maybe 5% of that is freestyle. But when I'm making work, it's all freestyle. Huh. It's just, it's a, it's a lab or it's anarchy in some sense. But that anarchy wouldn't have the power if there weren't for some prior conditions or some prior practice. Yeah, and preparation. Yeah, and there's got to be planning. Do we need money? Where are we going to be? How will we pay for this? Where are we going to perform? How do we get in there? Um, yeah, sure, there's a lot of planning that has to go around it. Hmm. Yeah, I think what you said about including all the ingredients or you know not counting anything out in the process of making something is really interesting. Um because I could imagine that that could maybe be overwhelming at some at sometimes. I mean, it sort of seems like in a lot of creative acts or pursuits, you could include tons of things, but then you ultimately have to select and refine. So in that process of selecting, given that you don't leave anything out, is that selection in your work mostly based off of intuition? Like you said, like, oh, that sounds cool, or... Like Micah's piano playing, what if we put that in? Like, I guess I'm curious about the process of selection. Well, it's some aspect of it is maybe what I would call saliency. So what is it that is potent and obvious? Both. Okay. And those don't necessarily go hand in hand. So the potent thing may not always be the obvious thing. 
So the obvious thing or the ostensible thing might be, oh, we're going to make a dance piece. Uh, and if I'm too strict or delimited with my thinking, I might not think that someone playing the piano on stage would be part of a dance piece or someone crawling on a piano would be part of a dance piece because there was some of that, but that was potent and it was just standing out to us. Yeah. And then there's another thing, which is working from desire. So what is it that I want to do? Hmm. And collaborators have a desire. They have a want to, I have this thing that I really want to do. And, and so then in the case of making work with students and I'm stepping away from the piece I was talking about with Micah into a kind of generality, but let's say there are five people and then there are five I want to's and then we have this constellation of I want to's and maybe you develop them. Um, maybe someone develops a kind of like this wild poem and they deliver it in a really interesting way. Maybe someone has a little series of gestures that they're doing and maybe someone wants to be out in the audience and those are three of the five. And then you have this, this content and again, thinking of creative process as something that is concrete and automatic concrete, meaning it's these specific desires. It's the poem. It's the person wanting to be out in the audience. It's this series of gestures and rather than, uh, again, making a prior design or a blueprint, you just look at the stuff that you have. Hmm. And then if there's an intellectual process or a design process or a theoretical process, it is to identify what is suggested by this juxtaposition of things that you would not have thought of if you were just sitting in a chair trying to think up a dance piece, so to speak. Hmm. So do you mean that like you're trying to find the common ground between all of those individual want to's in that process? Like what do these things have in common or how can we put these together? Maybe it's more, what is the relationship? Hmm. Or what is the world that would include them? Hmm. So what I think of is almost in all cases going to be smaller and more limited than that, which occurs to me. Hmm. So if I just let these three performers, and I realize now that I'm describing a kind of autocratic process, and maybe I want to come back to that later. Autocratic meaning I'm this person who's in a particular power relation with students because I teach here and there's students here and mm -hmm. on some level, even if it's a collaboration, I become a director and there are questions about the validity of that power dynamic with respect to actually enabling something that's creative. And, and I recognize that at the same time, I'm setting that aside for a moment to say that what happens if in the studio, we just allow these things to coexist. So you say, your poem and you sit over here where we think the performers are not supposed to be and you do these gestures and the three of us, the two students who don't have specific content yet and I will just look at this 
And what is it? What it, do we have a feeling for the world in which this exists? Because hmm. through this kitchen sink approach, through throwing in all of these different components of salient content, we also create an in-between space. There's a space between them or there's a space around them. What is that? Hmm. We're working in theater, which arguably is a container for a constructed reality. So what is the reality that those things construct without our imposing a reality on them? Does it feel like this is happening indoors? Does it feel like it's happening outdoors? If you heard something, what would it be in the background? Would there be music? Would you hear the buzzing of flies? Would you hear the grinding of gears? Would you hear nothing? Would you hear just someone coughing in the audience? What is the world that this inhabits? Is it a bizarre, apocalyptic, futuristic world? Is it the precise moment we're in, in the dance studio here at Whitman College in 2018 or whenever this might have been? And that's perhaps uh, being able to sit with these content components, but with no prior plan and just looking, letting that or letting those materials occur to us. Yeah, that's interesting. I like what you said about like ideas occur to me more than I think about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, I think I spoke about collaboration and relationships there was a fellow or is a fellow named Lopo Martinez, who's a visual artist and he has done some production design and art direction work for Circuit de Soleil. Interesting guy. And when I was in grad school, I listened to a lecture of his and when he was finished with his lecture, someone in the audience said, well, how do you know whether you want to collaborate with someone? And he said, ah, it's, I just look them in the eyes and I know hmm. it's based on eye contact and just the feeling of interpersonal connection. I would call that chemistry. So if there's another artist or maybe it's not an artist, maybe it's a scientist, maybe it's somebody I met in a coffee shop. Maybe it's a member of my immediate family. I don't know, but a potential collaborator, I can, I can feel it. It's a, it's an interpersonal chemistry and I have a vibe with that person. And often that's a person with whom I could just talk endlessly about nothing or about everything. <laughs> There's a vibration. Hmm. And then that's a person that you want to hang out with in a, in a, a space where there are no rules where anything is possible and just let that possibility lead us wherever it may without saying, okay, so we need a plan and we need to write this grant and we need to make a piece within a year. Uh, I think it comes from a chemistry and then there are things which occur to us that we never would have thought of. So, it, so for example, there's a fellow named JJ Gregg. He's a sitar player. He lives in Salem, Oregon. He's devoted his life to, South Asian classical music and to the practice of this instrument. He spent a huge amount of his life in India. 
he studied with a fellow named Ustad Usman Khan. And Khan is a known uh, sitar guru in India and a kind of a sidebar. One of the things that I learned listening to Khan talk is that there are only two areas of life in which gurus exist in South Asian culture. And one of them is spirituality and the other is music. Hmm. My take on it is that that pair is not um, unrelated. Right. JJ played for some contemporary dance classes at Whitman College. And after that, we just kind of agreed that we needed to have a collaboration. Now, I don't, I haven't asked JJ this, but I would venture that he never thought he would do a, a performance collaboration with somebody whose prime vocabulary was popping. And I definitely <laughs> never thought that I would uh, perform to a classical South Asian raga in theaters in Mumbai, India. I, it never would have occurred <laughs> to me. But we occurred to each other. And then we just kept working. And for a while, we were hanging out in the studio together and we were talking as much as he was playing and I was dancing. And we would talk and then he would play something and I would improvise a little bit. Sometimes he would play and I would listen. Sometimes I would move and he wouldn't play. And we just kept it up without, with no agenda, without trying to accomplish anything. Hmm. And then after we had been kind of meeting for several weeks or maybe it was a period of months, then something gradually started to coalesce. And it, we talked about it and it took form. And then pretty soon we were playing it at festivals. And the genesis of that is that JJ and I like hanging out together and talking about art, politics, uh, meditation, anything. Mm -hmm. There's a chemistry between us. There's a vibration. And so we didn't create a design. We just said, oh, well, now we're just going to hang out in a studio and see what comes out of that. And something came out of it. Hmm. Yeah. That seems like a, a pretty special relationship. Um, does that happen often when you collaborate with people that it's just sort of, you find that chemistry and then things really flow and it's very playful. Yeah. And I think that's, hopefully that's just in the nature of good collaboration that when people collaborate, they're coming from, uh, a spontaneous relation with someone or their it's, it's just somebody that they want to hang out with. Like this is somebody that I want to be in a lab with or be in a studio with or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool too. Cause, um, you and JJ, you said his name was JJ. Gray. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Come from two, well, at least it seems like you come from two pretty different backgrounds you know, popping and sitar playing seem pretty disparate to me, at least. For sure. Which might lead for, you know, or might make for a more fruitful uh, project, which is cool. So do you find that in your other collaborations that, you know, the more sort of disparate ideas you're able to bring together or the more people from different backgrounds um, the higher capacity there is for some creative result or the more creative that process is or the more ingredients you have with which to, 
you know, consider? I would hesitate to say that more is better, Hmm. but that doesn't, that's not to say that, or I don't want to border on indicating some kind of exclusivity because that's not the way to go either. But again, it's, I think, without design. Or maybe the design is more subtle than that, meaning that I'm not going to set out to find in collaboration the largest, most diverse, most disparately practicing group of people possible. Mm -hmm. I'm going to encounter whomever I encounter. And then when that encounter happens, everything is allowed. Hmm. I don't know if that distinction makes sense. Yeah. So are you saying it's more about the relationship between people or that sort of chemistry and connection and less about, you know, what they quote unquote bring to the. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, And I would, and then because that gets into curation, which is a selection process. Right. And a selection process can, you can sort of write yourself out of a possibility because you're deciding in advance, I'm going to select these things and I'm going to select these things because these things are cool or these things are different. Hmm. And that's perhaps a whole other aspect of creative process. Right. Justin Lincoln, who teaches in the art department here, I've heard him talk about collage and I feel like collage is is an interesting word because it could, and I'm kind of taking the flip side of this argument. So I'm being my own devil's advocate for a moment, Mm -hmm. but collage, that could be a very specific thing that you practice perhaps in an art studio, but that could be a way of thinking about curation. So if you're planning a group show or a theater season or or a festival, you could think about collage as a principle. So how am I putting these eclectic things together and what might be the relation between them? Hmm. But that's, that's a way of thinking about artistic work that's completed or artists whose separate oeuvre is kind of underway. And I feel like you're asking about what is it to use eclecticism as a tool for one's individual practice. Um, Yeah. And while you certainly could, I think it is a prior design and it, and it could work, but the risk that I see is that, it may, at least for me personally, it could get me into a territory of novelty hmm. or um, coolness. Okay. I think Quentin Tarantino is a good example of this. I had a, a performance artist colleague and friend named Julia Wilkins. She lives and works in New York. And she commented on Tarantino and his filmmaking and said that it's, it's about cool. So 
what is it to make the coolest movie you can make and how do you make the coolest movie? Hmm. And I feel like a conscientious eclecticism or a certain approach to curation could get you into the territory of cool, which has something to do with perhaps aesthetics alone or what is the, the, the kind of the pleasure of things in, in the way they look and in, in a sensory sense and in a sense of what is the most pleasurable um, chain of associations. Hmm. And that's a, a way to pursue things and it's a way to think about things. But it, for me personally, that would be a danger. Um, hmm. when, I get, when I start thinking about what's cool, I get into trouble because it takes me away from myself. For me, it's more about rawness and it's about depth. And for that reason, it's, it's just, it's more productive, for lack of a better word, to just get into the collaborative relationship and keep the platform open, so to speak, and to kind of play and to let there be a kind of chaos element or a kind of anarchy element and then just kind of see what comes. Meanwhile, though, practicing, 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 practicing. Yeah. And then not making any assumptions about whether that practice is going to come into the creative process or not. Huh. Or needing it to, or there having to be a have to. Like I practice popping. And so then that means like, oh, I'm, I'm going to make popping solos or popping sets. Maybe mm -hmm. I will, or maybe, maybe not. There's no, it's not obligatory. Hmm. That sounds that sounds difficult. <laughs> I mean, I've, at least for me, I would imagine like if I, um, and I'm thinking in the in the world of music, like if I you know produce something or if I have a bunch of different sounds that I really want to use and I think they're awesome, um, but being able to inhibit that for the sake of the collaboration sounds like kind of a tricky thing, you know, to not just let your enthusiasm for your own aesthetics or want to's like you said to just override right oh yeah maybe i think maybe i'm not communicating this that well okay um no everything is is everything is sort of allowed in of course so if i feel the impulse to wave or to pop then i would do that mm. and if i have yeah if I have the impulse or the desire that I'm working from that, I'm capitalizing that I'm fueling that I'm allowing that to be part of it. But at the same time, there's no, there's neither austerity nor is there a requirement. So by austerity, I mean the thing that, that I may desire that may be pleasurable. I'm going to, I'm going to avoid. So there's a mm. lot of buzz about, well, you've got to work outside your comfort zone. Well, I want to oppose that and say, what happens if you dive deeply into your comfort zone? What happens if mm. you dive deeply into something that you're doing regularly and you go more and more into it and explore that more? So rather than a kind of austerity principle, it's like a luxury principle. What is it that I enjoy about my practice? Huh. What is it that I enjoy about my practice when I'm most deeply into my practice? And what if I allow myself to go even deeper into that? I love that. So that's permitted. It's permitted. It's not an austerity. It's a permission. It's a kind of luxury. So there's there's neither austerity nor is there a requirement. Mm -hmm. So on the other hand, I'm not going to say, 
well, because I practice popping, I must make dance pieces about popping. No, because then the, you know, a festival tour to India or a, or a crazy gothic drag queen, like that art never would have been made <laughs> because I would have foreclosed right. on those pop possibilities by saying, no, I do popping now. I'm not doing that. I go to sessions and battles and I make little videos for the, for YouTube or whatever. <laughs> and I've, 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 I've killed it before it came alive, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not denying myself. And at the same time, I'm not delimiting myself. I don't know if that's, is that kind of making sense? Definitely. Yeah. It seems uh, kind of like a delicate balance, but at the same time, it sounds like that process can sort of emerge from just letting go of a lot of things at the same time. Yeah. Or that you can find yourself, you know, exploring things really deeply and, um, you know, not being as rigid to, you know, what you do, quote unquote, and just letting go seems like um, it'd be fruitful for some of those projects. Yeah. And there is, you, you know, you had a prior question about the kind of situation in which there might be so much stuff that you would have to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, with respect to creative process, there's a point that all art makers know about at which you've got to let some stuff go as mm. you're indicating. So maybe I have this constellation of different content components and maybe the world in which they live is starting to assert itself. And that's not a world I thought of prior, but maybe also along the way I had an idea. Oh, I know how we could kind of make this work or how we could put this together. Hmm. And maybe I, or we get attached to that idea. And then at some point, if we're really looking, we realize that we've got to discard that entirely hmm. because the thing we thought was going to be a solution no longer describes this constellation of potent content which is the same problem with a prior design. Like I, I have a blueprint and I set out to make this thing. And then along the way building the thing, I realized that I have not at all built the thing that I set out to build. And the thing that I set out to build, I need to let that die hmm. because the thing that is actually taking place will be much more powerful, but I hmm. have to be able to see it because at some point in creative process, there's a thing the beast sort of asserts itself. There's a thing that you never imagined that starts to take shape. And then you have to see what it is, even though it's under construction, it's not complete, but your mind's eye can project what that might look like when it's finished. You've got yeah, to yeah. that, which is almost always different from the thing you thought you were going to make when you started or the thing that you thought you were going to make through the first solution that occurred to you. Huh. And when that happens, often there are components of the content that no longer fit and you've got to let them go. You've got to be able to cut them away, discard them. And often there's a kind of heartbreak because those things that you have to cut away are the things that you started with. So they were the mm -hmm. things that were at the very beginning. And they're also often the things that you were most attached to at the onset. 
And with respect to that heartbreak, also sometimes the thing that asserts itself, and this is maybe another aspect of creative process, you can't see it. So there is, there is sometimes you get lost. And I think people, I think maybe it's a little bit of a taboo because people who are competent art makers maybe don't want to admit, myself included, that they're getting lost or that they're lost. And there's a thing that gets said among directors and theater makers, never let your collaborators or your cast members or your fellow performers know that you're lost. Hmm. And yet, if you're really deeply engaged in creative process, I think you, you get lost at some point. Because the thing that you thought you were doing or the solution you thought would work, um, if you if you can admit it, it's falling apart. It's not happening. But the beast has yet to assert itself, so to speak. So the thing that you are, in fact, making is not yet apparent. Um, and this process can be deeply sad and it can be heartbreaking. Hmm. Um, there is a, a, a mid to late 20th century Irish uh, painter named Francis Bacon who said that he would keep working after he had lost hope about a work. Hmm. He would have completely lost hope. And at that point he would continue working on the same painting and he would, and he would continue to work hopelessly. And it was when he was beyond hope that things would actually turn a corner and he would actually begin to produce something that was then inspiring or meaningful. Hmm. And likewise, he, by his own account in interviews, had trouble knowing when to stop. So he would just continue working on a painting after he had lost hope and he would continue working until he had destroyed it. Huh. And it was horrible. And he said the only thing that saved him is that he had an agent with a highly developed aesthetic sense who knew his artistic process and he would come into his studio. And he would say, I'm taking this painting away from you because if you keep painting, I'm going to destroy it. And he would physically remove it from him before he thought he was finished. Yeah. So there is this kind of cycle of, uh, of despair and inspiration, and there's a cycle of creation and destruction. And I think we have to be conscious as creators that we are in, if we're engaged creatively, we're engaged in that cycle. Um, and sometimes we'll get lost and sometimes we'll lose hope. And we can continue working um, even without hope. And there's something important about that because sometimes that's the only way through hmm. and 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 the creative processes that don't result in despair or don't bring us to that point are often not as fruitful hmm. and sometimes it's hard to see that when you're in the middle of it yeah yeah creativity and hope kind of go hand in hand for me at least and yeah thinking about you know, when you've run out of hope and you still choose to create or try or attempt and you sort of break through a wall almost, those are those are pretty special moments. Um, do you have any of those sort of moments in your experience where you want to throw in the towel or you're, you know, out of hope for a certain project and then you push forward a little bit more and then maybe something happens? Well, it happened, or maybe something similar happened with me and JJ. Hmm. It didn't happen in the sense that I couldn't come up with material or I didn't believe 
in the material I was coming up with. Um, it happened more with respect to the framing of the whole thing. Hmm. So JJ and I are both white guys from the U.S. Um, I practice popping. Of course, that's a culture that has roots in Oakland, California, and the deep structures of it, to use a turn of phrase from Monsell Il Cosby Durden, who's a dancer who teaches at USC, the deep structure comes from African-American social dances. Mm. I'm a guest in that culture. I'm a guest in West Coast street styles culture. I'm a white person practicing an African-American form. Mm-hmm. JJ is practicing a traditional South Asian form. And so here I am practicing what ended up being a kind of hybrid of Western contemporary dance forms and popping or street forms. And I'm practicing it to a classical South Asian form that has a deep history. It's a highly developed form with a centuries long history. And in that form, there is no dance component. So while through traditions like Bharatnatyam and Katak in India, dance is also highly developed in, through a variety of classical techniques. The raga, which is the form JJ practices, is not a dance form. Hmm. And JJ is closer to a, I would say, a particular tradition in this performance that we rendered because he played the form according to its tradition. He played a raga according to the raga form. I was already in the territory of hybrid, and one component of that hybrid movement vocabulary was already a vocabulary from a culture in which I'm a guest. And then we're putting it together that dance vocabulary together with this traditional music that in a traditional context does not have a dance form. And so there are a thousand ethical questions around that. So the freedom of creative process that I've been describing is also framed by a kind of larger set of privileges that have to do with the a race colonial situation and a whole bunch of prior economic conditions and political and social conditions, JJ and I benefit from. Hmm. And so we just continued in good faith because our intentions were not appropriative. Our intentions were not to pillage and make something cool. We were, doing our best to collaborate and make good work. And the collaboration, again, it came from just a conversation and a vibration that we had from working together in the studio in teaching classes. And for me personally, the risk of this from an ethical level was so extreme that it was, um, it made me not want to go on. I thought, oh man, this could, this could really be a bad hmm. idea. This is making a mistake. Um, and we did what we knew we needed to do, which was take it to India to a classical music and dance context 
and let people see it and have that conversation. And we did that. And that conversation was very enthusiastic and inspirational and, and, and very positive. Hmm. Um, and the people who saw it were people from these classical dance forms like Bharatnatyam and Katak. And these people were also scholars in, in a kind of traditional academic sense, some of them, of these forms. And so potentially the most critical audience and certainly the most deeply knowledgeable audience was our audience. Uh, and we were very warmly received. And that warm reception for me and I would imagine for JJ to uh, cause an even deeper reflection on what we were doing. And yet, of course, partway through the creative process, we didn't know that that's how we would be received. And I had questions about, about that artistic project on a, on a social and on a, on a political and ethical level, um, on all three of those levels or from all three of those perspectives. But if this, if there's any wisdom in this that pertains to creative process, uh, we just kept going in good faith, hmm. even if we were mistaken. Um, and there's a, for me personally, and this is separate from the project with JJ now, there's a kind of need to make. And sometimes I need to make things that are bad. Like sometimes I just need to make bad art. Like I, sometimes I make stuff and I may even have some inkling that it's not going to be really that great when I start making it, mm-hmm. but I need to follow through on that impulse. Like oh, I'm going to make a really bad dance or I'm going to write mm-hmm. this um, piece of writing. And I, and I don't know if it's going to be good and maybe I won't even want to share it, but I need to get it out and I need to get it out and it needs to be as highly developed and refined and articulated as it can be in all of its badness. <laughs> And then the ethical questions can come later about, is this something that I should really be sharing or is this worthwhile to share? Hmm. Um, and so maybe there's something about one's development as an artist where it needs to be okay for one to just make garbage. <laughs> um, and then you can decide whether you're going to just like throw the garbage out when you're done, <laughs> but there is a kind of going through it that has to happen or a permission to hmm. make maybe 10 bad things before you make one good thing. So why do you do that? Why does that, does that help your creative process or free up some space for the good stuff? I think so. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a kind of, uh, it, it's like getting the yayas out. Yeah. Like, ah, like maybe I just feel like I need to curse like a sailor right now <laughs> in our conversation. Um, but that's not the actual case. I'm just making that up as an example. And then you, maybe you're st- like, oh, God, Peter, just what is this foul mouth stream of <laughs> garbage? And then after five minutes, you know, I feel like I've gotten that out. And then I'm speaking in a, through that disinhibition, I'm able to express something that is more meaningful. Hmm. But for whatever reason, and I, I, I wish I could give you, you know, some psychological insight here, but I can't but there's a kind of like just a getting out that has to happen. Hmm. And I think there's, if that pertains to a creative process, maybe there's a thing about the shattering of, of taboo. Um, Like I need to not be inhibited by 
what I feel people will think about what I'm making. Right. Um, right. So Yvonne Meyer came to Whitman. Um, she was brought here by the director of dance, Renee Archibald, a few years ago, and she's an established dance maker and performance artist based in New York. She's a, a Guggenheim fellow, makes incredible stuff. Hmm. And she made this solo piece uh, called Durch Nacht und Nebel, which I think roughly translates as uh, through night and fog, which is a German expression, as she explained it, for getting through a trying time. Hmm. And at the time, because of arthritis in her knees, she wasn't able to perform it. And her collaborator, Lorraine Bubushian, performed a solo piece that was just packed with crazy images. Lorraine dug through a pile of gravel and extracted two eggs that had been hollowed out and she crushed the shells in her mouth and inside them were tiny plastic babies. And then later she appeared in a, like a unitard that was covered, studded with these tiny plastic babies. And she was like grabbing handfuls of them and ripping them off and pelting the audience with them. <laughs> and the piece was wild. And I remember there was this tension with Yvonne Meyer, the creator of the work who did perform it solo because she didn't want to talk about it in a post-performance discussion, which was a standard part of our format. And she said, I don't, I can't tell you what it means. I don't want people to ask me what it means. Hmm. Ask Laureen, have Laureen do the talk back. And at some point during her residency at Whitman, there was a, a moment when she was in the studio and I was in the studio and it was in the morning and it was before Laureen or Renee had arrived. I can't remember whether it was before or after the performance. And I was just kind of starstruck because she's a big deal. Mm -hmm. But there we were sitting on the floor of the studio, just kind of hanging out. And we ended up talking about our lives as dancers. And if I remember right, Yvonne is from Switzerland, but she left Switzerland when she was relatively young to come to New York. And during the course of that conversation, she, I told her that, that Walla Walla where Whitman College is, is the town where I was born. And she said, oh, I could never do it, Peter. I could never do it. If I were having to make work in the town where I was born in that conservative community where there are members of my family around, I would be so inhibited and hmm. afraid of the social judgments and the way they would receive my work. I would, I would not be able to create. It would be impossible. Yeah. I have to be in New York. I have to be away. And there was a thing that I did that a lot of people, my generation did. And I think this has been going on for since um, probably the beginning of artists, working artists and civilizations, which is getting away from your hometown mm -hmm. um, and going elsewhere as far away as you can get where there's the greatest conference concentration of working artists you can find hmm. where there's a possibility for chemistry but there's also the possibility to be perhaps uh, liberated from whatever might limit you, whether mm -hmm. that limitation is something that exists in your own mind that you've created or whether that limitation exists in, in some social way because of your family or because of the way that things are um, where you're from or maybe mm -hmm. some gray area between those where the margin of what is a real social limit or a cultural limit and what is a limit that exists in your head or maybe it's not clear where one starts and the other ends. Yeah. Did you have that experience in moving to New York? 
I think at some point I did, although perhaps ironically, a significant amount of the time that I lived in New York, I was a student at Juilliard, which of course was this very intensive training environment. And so for the most part, if you want to talk about percentages, most of my time, I would say 95% of my time was just spent developing my skill set and not in creative practice. Although when I did get into um, creative things, I found that I wasn't um, inhibited perhaps in the same way I might have been had I been making work in my hometown. Hmm. Well, I would love to circle back around to one idea that you mentioned earlier about um, evaluation and that idea of making something cool. Like you said, or I think one of your friends was talking to you about how Tarantino movies are cool. Like they're all, Mm -hmm. you know, appealing to a certain um, audience. And with dance and specifically with your, your work in dance, I'm curious if like the value of your work comes from, from an internal place of authenticity or depth, like you say, versus, you know, sort of appeasing an audience or giving an audience something that they want. I, I certainly hope so. I don't know how I would uh, evaluate that. Hmm. Um, but with respect to performance itself, I think it's about honesty. So how is it that I tell my story? And I don't mean that in a, a literal or autobiographical sense, mm-hmm. but how do I become honest such that something essential about myself is conveyed to the audience? Hmm. Um, so there's a fellow named Michael Kleon who's on the graduate dance faculty at Duke. And he made a piece uh, with a French contemporary dance performer. I'm going to forget her name now. And I'm sad that I can't remember it. But there was a, a festival in France. And again, I can't cite details. And he was supposed to make a solo for her. And he knew that she brought all of these skills. She was a mature artist by this time and, and decades of training and she was a seasoned performer. And all he did was select a track. It was, it was a, a, a continuous track, maybe 20 to 30 minutes of music, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And he said, do you think you could come onto the stage into the performance space with nothing prepared and just just improvise to this for the entire time with with (laughs) nothing planned, just respond as truthfully and spontaneously to this music as you can. And by his telling, by Cleon's telling, she was daunted by this, but she agreed to it. (laughs) And by his telling, he knew that this was going to be a more potent outcome than anything that he could have imposed on her through the setting of particular steps or choreographic requirements. And what was stunning to both of them was that by the end of the performance, she concluded, and for a moment, there were no applause. 
the audience had been so stunned by the emotional immediacy and power of her performance. And he said that the people, the audience was weeping. And sometimes we see performances where people cry happens all the time, or at least, I don't know if it happens all the time, but it, it happens periodically. And he said, but this was not a few people. This was the audience and mass you know, like wow. a critical mass of the people in the audience were in tears and they were literally stunned and emotionally undone huh. because she had just sort of opened this portal. Wow. And that's what we're going for. That's what we're trying to do, hmm. but we can't do it by deciding in advance, oh, well, this is going to be really cool or this is going to be a cool sequence of steps or this is virtuosic mm. or this is what's going to make it. Um there's another example. Uh, I was privileged enough to be at a, I think it was around 1998 at a festival called uh, Madrid and Danza, which was an international dance festival in Madrid. Mm-hmm. And there was a fellow I talked to at dinner one evening during the festival. And again, I'm going to forget his name. It was a sort of moment in passing, but he, he made his name as a soloist with the National Ballet of Spain and ballet um, meaning uh, traditional Spanish dancing and he was uh, Dutch Spanish and he had immigrated to Spain to join the company he was actually as a young man a painter until he saw a dance performance as a young man so probably in his early 20s and he speaking of creative process by his telling to me he immediately realized that he had not seen his true path, which was as a dancer. He dropped out of art school. He stopped painting. He moved to Spain. He started dancing because he knew it in himself that that was his path. And he became a dancer and made his life that way. And when we had the conversation, he was asking me about ballet because that was my foundational training was in, was in ballet. And he made this comment that I found kind of odd. He was like, you know, Brzezhnikov was never really that impressive. To me, I didn't get it. And if you don't know, Brzezhnikov is regarded by many people to be the greatest male classical dancer of the 20th century or the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, He had an incredible career. He had a formidable technique. He had acting ability. He had an incredible power on stage. Okay. And... And this dancer said to me, I just never got it. I saw him perform live. It, I, I didn't know what it was, what it was that people were so impressed with. And then there was a piece that was choreographed by a choreographer named Sarah Rudner that Brzezhnikov did in New York, I think at City Center Theater. And he would have been, Brzezhnikov would have been in his 40s at this time. And he had a contact mic on his chest and it was recording his heartbeat, which was connect through, connected through live sound feed to the speakers in the theater. Hmm. And he did a very subtle solo without virtuosic ballet movements um, to his own heartbeat. Oh, wow. And this same dancer who said, I never got the virtuosity and star power of Brzezhnikov said this solo when he saw it changed everything. Huh. And then he understood and I said, well, how did it change? He was, according to some people, past his prime. He was already in his late 40s. Um, 
there was no virtuosic stuff. And I think intuitively I knew the answer, but he said that was the moment when I actually saw his story. Hmm. That was the thing that the moment when that ineffable human thing was conveyed it was just him and his heartbeat and the audience and some simple movements. And that's almost like the opposite of coolness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I asked because I had a conversation for this podcast with one of my best friends um, who does stand up comedy in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and for him, you know, success for his comedy is directly related to audience response and audience feedback. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if people don't laugh, it's not funny and it's not successful, but you know, with these stories that you're telling, it's sort of like, if it's not honest or if it's not authentic, then it's also not successful, but in a different, in a different way, you know? Yeah. And it's, and I would not ever say the audience response doesn't matter because ultimately performance is about contact with the audience. And yeah. if we don't have that contact and we don't have that third space that's created between the the audience and the performer, we don't have a performance. Mm-hmm. It is about something, a, a corporeal or a vibrational experience for the audience that changes them, hopefully, subtly or on, in some way. And, and with respect to comedy, there's this kind of received wisdom that I think is valuable, which is to say that in in theater, we're doing the the ridiculous thing or the absurd thing with utmost seriousness. So if you're really going to make the audience laugh, and I think of uh, when a sketch on Saturday Night Live is really well written and really well played, the people who are performing the sketch are not playing to effect when it's really happening, when it's happening well. They're, they're on it. They're, they're, they're doing it within the confines of the character as seriously as they can. Yeah, And that's the thing in turn that makes it funny. Now, for stand-up, I don't know what the equivalent would be, Um, but I would suspect that there's, even though audience response is critical to building that momentum, um, there's something about the timing and the delivery itself that's still Mm -hmm. extremely rigorous and has to be taken very seriously. So if there's any relation between that and, and and something about honesty maybe that's it but yeah but i don't know i'm spitballing yeah (laughs) um i'll have to i'll have to connect to a scott and you can you can shoot the breeze cool but yeah so i'm i'm curious with all the things that you do and that we've talked about whether it's choreography or performance or collaboration do you have a favorite part of those things or is there are there favorite moments that uh, or the reason why you do what you do? Ooh. Mm, the why. That's tough. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the moment when, with respect to performance anyway, the thing that you are hoping will happen happens Hmm. when a performer 
is transformed, meaning that you don't recognize them anymore as the person you know them to be when they're not performing. Hmm. There's something, they're a different person or a different entity would be a better word. And when that transformation occurs, the audience knows, maybe not in any conscious or intellectual way, but they know through what we might call a vibration or the subtle body or uh, a feeling or even sensation. And then when they, the audience comes back to themselves or passes through that experience, something is altered or different or their imagination has grown or they've experienced something. Um, that doesn't happen very often, but that might be, that might be the why. Hmm. Yeah. I remember, um, what was that performer's name? Crank, Crank Sturgeon. Oh yeah. 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 When he came to campus, I think, I feel like I sort of had one of those moments, um, as an audience member watching his performance, even though it was totally out of left field and I was, <laughs> I didn't know what to expect. And it was a pretty wild performance. Um, but at least in my experience as an audience member during that, there's something really powerful about watching just him doing his thing full force. Mm -hmm. Um, and just complete, complete honesty, complete authenticity, no matter how weird it was or, you know, how many different things he slammed his contact mic against. Um, right. It was almost like it was, I don't know, it was bizarre, but it was really touching. Mm hmm Yeah, there's something about commitment to whatever the action is. Mm-hmm. So to switch gears a little bit, I'm... So we've talked a little bit before about, um, and I think you shared an article with me about the connection between brain and skin and yeah. specifically from a developmental uh, perspective that they're, they come from the same uh, developmental layer. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Which makes me curious, you know, in all of my research uh, for my senior paper and you know, in focusing my major and my curriculum around the central nervous system and the brain and thinking about, you know, whether or not that's really the best way to approach an understanding of creativity, you know, dismissing the peripheral nervous system in our body. Um, and, you know, what understandings, you know, we all might be sacrificing by not including the soma as a, as a data set in understanding cognition or the mind. Mm. Well, so what you're referring to is the ectoderm. So those three developmental layers are the endoderm, ectoderm, and the mesoderm. Mm. And if you're focusing on cognition with respect to brain activity and assuming that's the locus of creativity. 
I, I'm struggling for words a bit, but whether that focus is capturing some key event hmm. or not, uh, I think creativity is total. Yeah, maybe maybe a better question is, do you think the brain is the only place that creativity happens? Well, you're asking a dancer. <laughs> so I almost want to ask you if that's a trick question. <laughs> yeah, it's a softball. You know, I, like my answer is no, I, it's, it's not. And what does that mean? Right. So it, with respect to development and somatics, for example, just to take one possible approach to the question, we could think of Bartenia fundamentals, which were and are a series of movements created by a body worker and artist and dance therapist named Ermgard Barteniev, who modeled those movements on the sequential developmental movements of infants. And we know from research that those movements enhance, rebuild, and improve neural pathways and then in turn our way of moving through the world, hmm. but also that they help us with verbal expression. They help us with learning more efficiently hmm. and building on that and perhaps departing from it somewhat, Bartenia fundamentals are connected with Freudian tradition, psychotherapy or talk therapy. Hmm. If we want to talk about as a jumping off point, the psyche, we could also talk about what is unconscious and how that matters with respect to creative process. Hmm. And I think that's connected to the thing that occurs to you or the thought you have, which is different to the thought you're thinking or the project that you think up or that you mentate actively. Hmm. So that which occurs to me, or if we stretch it a little further, that which I dream is not something that I make up. But in a somatic sense, in a sense of a mind-body unity, I did make it up. It came from me. It didn't come from another person. I did make it. But I didn't but I didn't make it happen in the sense of active mentation. It just occurred. Um, and I don't know what current research says about dreaming, but the way I think of it is that it's something that just happens. Hmm. And I would venture, and this is, this is part conjecture and part just my subjective experience. If I am in tune in some kind of motor neural sense that might be related to a developed aspect of me, which is to say that my cross body coordination is functioning. My movement functioning is optimal. I'm moving in a way that is, that is fluid and, and coordinated and has ease and flow. Then 
I will be more likely to have things occurring to me. This is what some people call a state of flow. But if I have some scar tissue or some uh, inhibition or, um, and by inhibition, I mean in terms of my patterned habitual movements, which may not be optimal, perhaps that moment of something occurring to me is, is less likely or less frequent. Uh, hmm. Likewise, that scar tissue or that tension or that inhibition or that habitual movement that may not be optimal or so healthy, as it, as it heals or as I create a more optimal movement situation or a more easeful situation, maybe that's this, the, the moment when the things occurring to me or that creative flow become more likely. I've heard about people having bursts of creativity when they're just on the verge of being fully recovered from profound illness or from, you know, recovery from injury. Uh, I feel the same thing is also true um, with people recovering from trauma, whether it's a, whether it's, you know, a car collision or whether it's, a combat veteran with PTSD. I think there's something about the creative process in, in healing mm -hmm. where perhaps with respect to physical trauma, movement becomes more optimal or better coordinated. And that's related to a total flow, including a cognitive flow because we mm -hmm. can't really pull those apart. And with regard to psychic trauma, and I'm not separating these, I'm saying that there are perhaps two different aspects of, of a mind-body unity, but they're really not separated. Um, and when I say psychic trauma, I mean a trauma whereby the healthy rhythm of my sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system is compromised, mm. meaning that I've because I've been traumatized, I'm, I'm hyper alert or I'm continuously alert in a way that makes life more difficult. And when through a healing process, which is a physical process coming into a better rhythm and my parasympathetic sympathetic rhythm is better, I'm more relaxed. If you want to think about hmm. brain science, I'm probably spending more of my time in alpha wave brain activity as opposed to beta wave. And again, I'm moving into conjecture on my part, but I think it would be a fair conjecture that when I'm in that more relaxed state through a healing process, it's more likely that, that these things are going to occur to me. I'm going to have creative bursts or that I'm going to feel I'm in a creative flow. Because as a soma, as a total organism, I'm in a flow. I'm in a healthful way of moving and living, hmm. which is my total self from the crown of my head down to my toenails. Yeah. And I think that's super interesting, too. I mean, in the world of psychology research and neuroscience that I've you know been able to dip my toes into with my senior project and with this curriculum, um, you know, how much of the experience, like the total experience of 
soma or of an organism is kind of discounted for the sake of focusing just on the brain. And like you said, they're not that, you know, they might not be as as clean cut separated. Yeah, they're not. You could metaphorically speaking or by analog rather, you could draw a line with your mind's eye from the tip of a leaf to the root ball of a tree. Hmm. It's a continuum. Now the the roots are not the leaf, but there is a path of nourishment that is connecting them. Hmm. And it's all the tree. <laughs> yeah, it is all the tree. So I'm curious if you have um, if you have any advice for the neuroscientific creativity research community <laughs> um, about why it might be worthwhile to involve some of the peripheral nervous system or uh, somatic experience in in creativity specifically, but in our ability to to live well and and do things. Well, I I I might have my with my punk right rock self, I might have a kind <laughs> of uh I might have a critique which could be embedded with some assumptions. So please forgive me those. Um and then I may may have a, a suggestion. And and my question is why are people studying creativity in this particular brain cognitive kind of way. Um, mm -hmm. And, and my fear is that we, we're in a time or maybe we're in a place where our way of thinking about things is influenced by capitalism. And I realize that's mm. a very big word. And so when I say that, I mean a system in which labor is a commodity that exists within a market. Mm -hmm. And if that's influencing our way of thinking of things and our way of thinking of things touches on creativity, then perhaps the underlying assumption is that I need to be productive in quotes. Hmm. And if I'm going to be more productive, then it would be beneficial to study that which drives production. One thing that hmm. might drive production is creativity. So I can figure out if I can figure out how that clock ticks, then I can make it tick faster and it's going to be good for everyone because that means the cash is flowing. <laughs> um, to say it in a different way, the, the need to understand the why of this in some cases is arguably predisposed to a kind of a, a market kind of fundamentalism. Hmm. it's coming from a, no, a, a notion of production. Hmm. And, and that's extremely dangerous. 
so that's the that's the that's the critique or maybe that's just the thing that i need to say whether it's well founded or not um now if i had suggestions i think what would i suggest maybe just observe the people who are deep into this stuff and watch what they're doing which is an odd suggestion because how do you know whether someone's deep into it and then you'd have to establish maybe a working definition of what creative creative process is and what depth means in the context of that but if there's any basic wisdom watch the people who are doing it what are they doing Mm -hmm. and i would venture it's a whole variety of things yeah but again uh practicing might be part of it Hmm. And they're practicing something, meaning they're doing something with their whole self. Yeah, that's that's an idea that we've come back to a lot, is the idea of practice. Um, but do you think that's pretty fundamental to to any creative pursuit, is practice and routine and um, like developing your capacity to do something? I think it's a, I think it is a, a, a critical bystander <laughs> so <laughs> the, the practice is the bystander and you've got to have that the practice needs to be on call huh. all the time it's like the it's like in have you seen the movie back to the future i have okay and doc says that you know it's going to take 1.21 gigawatts capacitor to launch the car from 1955 to 1985 right Uh and the practice is like the lightning bolt Hmm. it only happens at that one moment and then the car takes off yeah and that's some or maybe it's not even the lightning bolt um this could be a completely flawed analogy that's going to totally fall apart <laughs> um and i confess that i'm lost <laughs> but if there's any value to this at all the practice is the thing that's always standing by all the time hmm. it's this uh firmament above us and then at a critical moment when it's needed it can flow in but it can't flow in at the critical moment if it's not always there and the only way that there can be a there there is if you're practicing all the time huh so it's a it's a critical bystander, meaning that the sky is there above all of the outdoor scenes in Back to the Future, and the potential for lightning likewise is always there. But it's not a movie about weather. <laughs> right, that's an awesome way to put it. Yeah. Um, so you need to have it, but I don't think, and there's an opposing point of view on this. Hmm. And, there, and I'm gonna. I'm not good at citing things right now, but there's a European filmmaker who said, if you want to make the most, and I'm paraphrasing or trying to get to the sense of what he said, if you want to get to the, 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 the earth-shattering, audience-shaking, revelatory, beautiful, stunning thing, you've got to practice your life in the most routinized, norm-core bourgeois way possible. Huh. So that when you practice art, then it can be, just a, a beautiful chaos. Huh. Um, and that's perhaps the opposing point of view, which is to say that 
routine is 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 the thing you need so that this chaos or this creative thing can erupt. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is a different way of making the same point, or maybe this is the flip side of the same coin. But I think with respect to routine, there's another way to look at things, which is that you maybe one way of inducing creativity or making that moment when something occurs to you more likely is to disrupt your routine. Hmm. So I sit down at this table and eat my bowl of cold breakfast cereal at this time in the morning, facing this direction with this napkin and this spoon every time. And one way of looking at it is that if that's set, then I'm not thinking about that. And then that allows my mind to drift. And when my mind drifts, Mm. something can occur to me. Right. But another way is that maybe in creating a life for myself that's so quotidian and routinized, I've delimited out any possibility of anything happening. So to take the other side, maybe I say, well, I need to, I need to introduce that chaos element and it's January and it's 32 degrees outside and it's blowing snow, but I'm going to take a bagel with cream cheese up to the roof of my building with my parka on and I'm going to eat my bagel on the roof in the blizzard. And that's not the routine, but, but maybe then something occurs to me because I've disrupted things a little or I've set, things off a little or rearranged a little bit right now if if i don't have conditions such that that's likely to occur then i I don't have the luxury to do that so if my life itself is stressful or chaotic i don't have Mm. the platform onto which i can introduce a chaos element right so there's this mistaken notion that to be poetic we need to delve into suffering so life itself is suffering. We don't need to like make more or like go harder on the point. Hmm. Um, you, if, if you believe that life is all pleasure and beauty, you're not turned on. You have, you're not awake yet. Hmm. Um, so again, having this situation where we could like go to the roof with our bagel, that's because that person's, life is relatively stable and some things are basically taken care of so that they have the time and space to do that. Right. And that's very different from things being disrupted because of outside stressors or because of prior conditions not being sufficient. Um, that's a different situation. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a stress situation in which the things that are constantly changing or that are fluid are actually inhibiting you, not disinhibiting you. And they're inhibiting you because, um, you're you're in a you're in a a fight flight situation and right. not in a relaxed situation. Huh. And that uh, that balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system is something you've mentioned is you know having that imbalance is has been conducive for you, right in in being creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's being it's being relaxed enough or having the time and space for something to occur to you or um, to be playful or to be a little silly. Yeah. yeah. And I think that relates a lot to our current situation right now with 
coronavirus and um, self-isolation and safety and survival and everything like that. Mm -hmm. That seems like, I, I mean, at least I've seen a lot of, you know, people being creative and, you know, somebody ran a marathon on their porch um, <laughs> and people in Italy are, you know, singing to each other down the street and that's awesome. Um, but like you said, it's kind of a dual edged sword um, that if you have that safety and if you have that security, then you're able to do creative things like that. But if you don't, then it's a different, it's a different question. Right. Um, well, hopefully that uh, whole storm will pass sometime soon, hopefully sooner rather than later. I agree. But uh, unless you have anything else to add or any ideas to leave people with about creativity or any of the things we've touched on, then, um, yeah, might call it a call it curtains. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you, Peter. I, I really appreciate it. Cool. Well, take care. All right. You too. The music for this podcast was Suspirium by Tom York. If anyone at Whitman is listening to this and you have the opportunity to take a class from Peter, um, do it. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, and if anyone in Walla Walla is listening, keep an eye out for performances. Uh, whenever that may be. I'm James Grabiel. Thank you for listening to this episode of Creativity in Mind. Take care.